Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and industry experts about everything from emerging trends to marketing strategies to regulatory pressures. Despite the ongoing political turmoil in the U.S. and uncertainty around fiscal policies, consumer confidence in the U.S. economy are stabilizing, which according to analysts at Deloitte, make now a good time for CPG companies to explore new avenues for growth beyond just launching new products. In Deloitte's recently released Consumer Products Industry Outlook, the research firm notes that unemployment in the U.S. reached a record low of 4.2% last September, with about 148,000 jobs added monthly. Real disposable income was up 1.8% in 2017 and on track to rise by more than 2% this year. At the same time, U.S. consumers are benefiting from low inflation. All of these factors helped consumer confidence rise nearly 16% in 2017 compared to the prior year, setting the foundation for shoppers to spend more this year. To capitalize on this growth, as well as an overall improving global economy, Deloitte suggests U.S. CPG companies focus on expanding into new retail markets globally and diversifying their distribution channels both on and offline. It also suggests companies consider new alliances to help fuel innovation, not just of products, but also processes. To better understand what each of these strategies entails and how companies can maximize their impact, I caught up with Deloitte's Barb Renner, who's the vice chairman and the U.S. consumer products leader for the company. Given the U.S. economy's stability, it may be tempting to focus on the home front, but Renner explained that because the U.S. is steady, firms have more resources now to focus outward. Plus, she knows that in the U.S.'s current case, steady treads uncomfortably close to stagnant, at least in terms of who's buying. The percentage of U.S. to total world population is shrinking, and most consumer product companies obviously are built on a growth plan, and that growth plan is somewhere in the neighborhood of 7 to 9%. And with the U.S. population, they're growing about two to three organically. And so they're looking at how to either increase, um, go into adjacent spaces where they haven't been before. That's why you've seen a lot of acquisitions in the consumer product space. They are trying to go global into markets that they haven't been into before. Renner explains one reason companies are attracted to emerging markets is because their populations are growing much more quickly than in the U.S., as is the size of their middle class, which means more people spending more money. For example, in India, 65% of the population is under the age of 35 years, which represents current and future shoppers. In the U.S., on the other hand, only 46% of the population is under the age of 35 years. At the same time, the global middle class is growing at a predicted 66% of people qualifying for this bracket by 2030, compared to only 28% in 2009. A closer look at these shifting demographic trends also shows that as companies expand into global markets, they'll need to change how they perceive gender relations to shopping. According to Deloitte, women are becoming, quote, prominent creators of wealth and will control 75% of all household spending by 2028. In addition, 
The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics points out that 29.3% of women earned more in 2013 than their husbands, compared to only 17.8% in 1987. Renner explains how companies already are responding to this shift. Well, if you look at a, a beer company before, a beer company would maybe have targeted um, males in their 20s and 30s, and many had branding campaigns associated with that. With the increased purchasing of women and the increased growth in different um, markets or regions around the globe, now they have to look at that segmentation differently and how they attract that consumer. So for example, you know, you've got, go back to the, the beverage, uh, the beer company, you've got traditionally very large um, mass production beer focused on a certain consumer. Now with customization, the craft brewery has significantly picked up in different markets. So you'd have, and you also have a different type of consumer in a developed country versus a developing country. A, a number of companies that have brand campaigns that are focused to women, there's um, some specific where they might be looking culturally where a woman had a different place in the household than in versus work. And so you're seeing campaigns that companies will be focused on maybe hitting a specific culture with a woman that is evolving and in, in working outside of the home. For How companies speak to men around the world is also changing watch when I see the ads is that they're trying to appeal to men. So for example, the, the um, food delivery, so companies, you'll see in the television uh, commercials now, there'll be a man preparing the meal while the woman is doing something different. And so I think what they're trying to do is, is appeal so that it, they see a sense of self or themselves in that ad. Um, but the consumer products companies do now have to consider the different generations as well as the you know, different regions, as well as the different genders. So it's a multidimensional. Evolving marketing for different gender dynamics around the world may be easier than evolving marketing for different generations around the world. Renner explains that companies must refrain from targeting only younger shoppers, even though they make up the largest portion of the shopper base. And the best way to do that is to continue on the path towards digitization. As we grow to a ten and a half project billion people globally projection, how do they focus on the, the biggest buying consumer for their category, but also recognize that people are living longer? So the average age of the population is decreasing, but you have these multiple generations, and the older generations still want to be relevant. So they're still engaging um, both uh, digitally um, with companies as well as another um, more traditional means. So where we see many CP companies, they're trying to work with the, what we call the customer engagement and the journey throughout pre-purchase, purchase, post-purchase, and that engagement with them and different generations and different people want a different way of engaging. Someone is electronically in the aisle while they're at the grocery store, someone in an advance would like to have more engagement at the store. On that note, Renner says that optimizing digital consumer communication and e-commerce are fundamental to fueling future growth. According to Deloitte's report, online sales may represent only a small portion of packaged food and beverage sales currently, 
but it's growing fast with sales of consumer products expected to grow 350% to $36 billion, that's with a B, in 2018 from $8 billion in 2013. For context, offline sales only grew 3.6% in the same period. Granted, it was off a larger base. Unfortunately, figuring out how to tap into this growth is still a work in progress for many companies. Right. So this is the issue, and everyone's trying to figure out how they how they use that as part of the customer journey and, and make it the most positive side. And many companies have components of uh, digital aspects in their customer journey or in even in their internal journey. It, the question is, how do you make it so that it's the best process possible? And companies are really struggling with that. And what does that look like? What does good look like? What does great look like in that space? Renner acknowledges it's probably easier for startups to double down on e-commerce, in part because they're willing to try and fail fast. In general, they're also able to attract the talent that they need to maneuver more easily online. This could be due to their values that are usually more closely aligned with those of the tech scene. One way that Renner says larger companies can attract employees who can help build their digital presence is by embracing a social mission and catering to the demands of emerging consumer capitalism. The consumer today is very focused on the social impact of companies, not just what they're doing. Um, you know, it's, it's community, it's employee, it's consumer, it's um, what they're selling, how they're, you know, their supply chain. So actually having and, and creating the statement versus kind of letting the statement be out there is where a lot of consumer products companies are focused so that their, their social mission resonates with the consumer. Um, and that, if it resonates with the consumer, then it will resonate with the talent. Um, so traditionally, if, company, if consumer product companies were competing with technology companies to acquire the best and the brightest talent, it might have been more difficult. Now what they can do is they've got technology, data analytics, other capabilities that they're looking for, but they now have a social mission that resonates with the talent. I think they can compete in a much different way. So Another way to attract talent necessary to drive growth through innovation is through acquisition or by forging new alliances. That is probably the one of the biggest issues that consumer products and, and actually all companies are having today is where where do they put their energy? They know they need to stay in the forefront and there's disruptors and they want to anticipate the disruptors or disrupt themselves in advance of that. Um, what we see, we see many uh, alliances, whether it's partnerships or other arrangements between companies or people throughout a supply chain. You see um, many companies, especially the larger ones, where they will acquire a health and wellness, a huge health and wellness huge company that might be in you know, more of its um, trajectory, but they acquire that not just for the product, but for the entrepreneurism and in different kind of environment that they have and talent. You see a lot of consumer product companies that will have what they, we call venture funds, where they will be making investments, like you said, either in 100% or um, personal investments in a company. And the, the idea there is that currently the multiples, the, the price of deals is so high and the risk so high that 
they want to get invested in them early, so they might invest in 10 to 20 companies knowing that two or three will be very successful and, and the rest may not, but they buy in that, get in at a time where they can influence them and have that success and then they can you know, own them as part of their portfolio. And when they do that, they actually manage it more like a fund versus part of the traditional business and have the same, have different ROIs than the traditional business that they have. I just should say some of the factors would include, you know, how does it relate to their current space? Is it adding something that's in an adjacent space? current space or something that's very um, future where they think the, the marketplace for their category is going. Uh, they would clearly look at is it another, is it a geography um, that brings them into a marketplace that they're currently not. Does it have certain capabilities either in technology or in people? We'll go over some of the factors, but price obviously is a, a significant one as well. Before startups form an alliance with a larger company, Renner suggests they consider their capital needs, their current access to market, and to consumers, and if those elements they can grow organically over time on their own, or are they something that they need immediate help with? Bold innovation also might not require alliances or even new product or process. Renner explains that many companies, especially those with iconic brands, are fueling growth with innovation through renovation of their existing brands to meet new consumer demands. One such brand is Otis Spunkmeyer, which is in the process of reformulating its iconic suites with a no-funky-stuff tagline. Jonathan Davis, who's the senior vice president of Otis Spunkmeyer's parent company, explains what the reformulation is based on, what inspired it, and how it's driving growth. You know, the, the No Funky Stuff was our initiative to really, um, you know, obviously address um, our ingredient declaration and, and understanding that the consumer is looking for, for cleaner uh, ingredients, ingredients they can understand, ingredients they can relate to. So we took a look at some of our formulas, especially the top tier um, line of cookies more specifically, and we wanted to sort of uh, focus in on those because we believe that those customers on the top tier appreciate more, you know, the cleaner labels and, um, you know, the, the more um, identifiable ingredients. So, you know, the, the No Funky Stuff was sort of an, an internal uh, uh, directive, which is, you know, like get rid of trans fat, um, no partially hydrated oils, no artificial flavors, um, and, you know, trying to make it, you know, look like a cookie you would make at home. That's kind of, you know, what our goal was uh, in doing that. And I think we, we labeled the No Funky Stuff to sort of as a way of communicating that to our consumers as opposed to, to waiting for them to read the label. The effort, he said, has not gone unnoticed by companies' customers or the end shopper. Uh, it's been greatly appreciated and, and you know, like I said, the consumers are appreciating it, but also our customers because now they have a food, you know, that they can offer to their consumers um, that that meets that sort of criteria because, uh, you know, as we all know, the consumers are a lot more educated now on, on food and food ingredients and where it comes from. So it's a good way for both our customers and consumers to, to sort of, you know, embrace that. But so far it's been, it's been uh, very positive. 
As we can tell from these examples, each of these strategies offer companies different opportunities and raise different challenges. And while brands should pick the ones that work best for them in their current situation, Deloitte notes that ultimately all of these changes will need to be addressed in the near term in order for firms to stay relevant. And with that, we've come to the end of another episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast. I hope you'll join me again next week for another installment. Until then, I hope you have a profitable and productive week.